This was in uh, Christianity Today magazine, gosh, probably 20 years ago now. It was called In Search of the Christian Lifestyle. And ostens- I'll see if you uh, can relate to this. Ostensibly, it's uh, from uh, a man's son-in-law's, uh, a frustrated son-in-law. It's from his diary. It says this, Saturday, I slept in today, read the paper, wasted most of the day lying around watching TV, was listening to Christian radio tonight, though, challenged by the message. He said that the problem with the world is too many lazy Christians. So Sunday after church, I bade farewell to the wife and kids. I spent the afternoon collecting canned goods for the soup kitchen in the city. Met the family back at church just in time for the evening service. Speaker talked about the decline of the family. He said fathers just don't spend enough time with their children anymore. So Monday, I left work a little early, took the kids out to eat, then took them to a movie, had a great time. Back at home, I was flipping through the channels on TV. Special on World Hunger caught my eye. You could support someone for an entire month for the cost of dinner and a movie, the announcer said. (laughs) So Tuesday, I fasted all day. Then I went to the men's fellowship meeting. We had a special speaker who talked about physical fitness, emphasizing that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said the key to being in shape is good nutrition and exercise. So I went home and ordered pizza. (laughs) Wednesday, got up early to jog. After work, shot some hoops with the kids. Driving back from the basketball court, turned into another radio preacher. This one talked about burnout. Said people are so busy with church, family activities, work, etc. They never have time for themselves anymore. (laughs) Thursday, slept in today, read the paper, wasted most of the day lying around, didn't bother to turn on the radio. (laughs) There's the key to Christian growth, isn't it? Just keep off that radio. That'll kill you. I think the hardest thing for us in moving from here to here is moving from following principles, good principles, nothing wrong with things that we hear, but living around principles instead of living in love. This is how Paul describes it. This is Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read it to you from the message, so you're not used to the language unless you read the message. I love the message, quite honestly. I think he gets it wrong in some places, so I don't think it's a translation that you can necessarily trust. But there are places where he really gets it right, and I think this is one of them. This, is, this shows us that what's at stake in Galatia is not Judaism versus Christianity. Listen to this. This is about verse 14 to the end of the chapter. We Jews know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. We know very well that we are not set right by rule-keeping, but only through personal trust in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound good? How by rule keeping? Personal trust. How do we know? We tried it. And we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Why? They're Jews. They've got God's rules. My goodness, they've got the real stuff. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement. We trusted in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Has some of you noticed that we are not yet perfect? No big surprise, right? And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, that Christ must somehow be an accessory to sin? The accusation is frivolous. If I were trying to be good, I'd be rebuilding the same old barn I tore down and I would be acting as a charlatan. What actually took place was this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it did not work. So I quit being a lawman so I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how to do it and enabled me to do it, and I identified myself completely with Him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I'm no longer driven to impress God. That sounds like revolutionary language, doesn't it? You no longer, what? You're not trying to impress God? No, I'm not trying to impress God anymore. He said, Christ lives in me and the life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going back on that. Is it not clear to you that go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion? would be to abandon everything personal and free in my relationship with God. I refuse to do it. I refuse to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. Does that say it about as well as it can be said? 
My goodness, I think that flips religion on its ear. We need to learn to live out of this love relationship with God. I, here's what I hope ends for this weekend. I hope through all the blather, what I'm really telling you is tomorrow morning or tonight if you want to start, but if you want to take the rest of the day off, that's fine. Tomorrow morning, wake up and just say, Father, would you show me how much you love me today? And would you teach me how to live in your love? That's it. That's really it. I've told some people, look, I don't care if you don't do anything for two years because the angst we have in religion is I've got to do something. It's not enough just to live in God's love. We really don't believe God's worth loving for Himself. And then until I get the loving right, following all the principles in the world is not going to make me a better person. It's not going to change. In fact, it's going to make me more obnoxious to other Christians in the world. So I've got so many principles I'm following that, doggone, you better follow it too. And like this frustrated son-in-law in this article I read to you. I've got books on my shelf that all tell me the right way to do everything. And none of them work or people wouldn't keep writing new ones. <laughs> yeah. That's right. The only way this works is you get to live love. Father wants to engage you through Jesus so that you wake up in the reality of who He is. Now, that's not always touchy-feely, goosebumpy. Some days it is. I love those days. Some days it's not any of that. It's just, here we go, God. And live out of not following all these principles to ingratiate God to you, but simply, Father, what are you giving me today? And live in the... I think we've got to learn to stop living by principles. Tangential to that is stop living by guilt. I was asked to interim a fellowship in a town I was living in. They were between pastors. We were going to hire a new one. Would you be our interim guy? And I said, no, really, I'm so not interested. And they said, would you at least teach us on Sunday mornings? And I was home for the summer, so I thought, well, I could do that. And I said, well, what do you want me to teach about? So we want you to teach on the cross. Uh, uh, you want me to teach on the cross? Really? I said, well, if you want me to do that, I need to meet with the elders. And they said, okay. So we arranged a lunch with the elders. And I said, I just want to ask you guys, if you want me to come for nine weeks and teach on the cross on Sunday mornings, I said, I want to ask you a question. How much work do you think gets done around this building during the week and on Sundays because people would feel guilty if they didn't? And pretty honest bunch. They said, probably 90%. I said, really? Yeah, probably 90%. Wouldn't get done if people didn't have guilt. I said, well, then I want you to understand. If we're going to talk about the cross for nine weeks and you listen to me, then 90% of what you're doing is going to stop. Are you okay with that? If you're okay with that, I'm okay too. And they were going, yeah, we're okay with that. <laughs> okay. I taught for nine weeks. They didn't listen to a thing I said. They were wonderfully gracious and amening me and laughing when I make them laugh and all that stuff. But in the end, because they were having, they asked me if I could skip one Sunday in this nine weeks because they were candidating the guy. And could I come and listen to the guy? And give me my give them my feedback on the guy. So I, the last thing I want to do is sit through some guy coming out of seminary with all the answers in the world. But I said, okay, I'll come. So Sarah and I went that morning, and this guy was worse than your normal guilt shoveler. I mean, he was the opposite of everything we'd been sharing for seven weeks together. And uh, sure enough, not one elder called me to ask later, what did you think? They asked me to be there. And then no one called. They knew what I thought. They hired the guy anyway. I just went, man, at least now you know what you're getting, I guess. If, that, if you're addicted, and people are, I think the hardest bit in this journey for me was that I'm not doing the things I've done since I was a little kid. Being in church Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, being involved in all these activities and outreach things. And when I all of a sudden that just cut them all off. I'm not doing any of that. I'm only going to do what Father shows me to do. And if Father doesn't show me anything for six months, I'm not doing anything for six months. I'm just not. Boy, guilt ravaged my soul. And I said, God, what do I do with this? I, mean, I wake up Sunday morning, guilty. Oh, my gosh. And I, I, was, I remember playing golf with my son one Sunday morning because my son wanted to go golfing. I said, yeah, let's go. We were out playing golf. Right next to the building we used to rent to have church. And I, were, I, and I was playing golf. I'm feeling so guilty. And I'm going, God, I know better than this. I'm going to get with believers tonight. So even if there's a requirement issue, I'm doing it later. Why do I feel so guilty? And I just I had the kind of moment where I think, remember driving past here all that time? 
Think about all those guys playing golf, which you'd rather have been doing anyway, but you just said what bad people they are, and you, you dumped all that condemnation on this golf course. It's been sitting here waiting for you. And I thought, oh, now that makes sense to me, you know. Didn't Jesus say something like, with the judgment you met out, the judgment will be meted back to you? Okay, so this is mine. This is my guilt out here. Perfect. You're going to help me fix this, right? He's, oh, yeah, we're going to help you fix it. But the only way is to lift it. It's to stop. As long as you respond to guilt, guilt will own you. So when you stop, I'm going to feel guilty. We probably should go. When you hear the word should, we really, we're going to make a t-shirt someday that says, don't should on yourself and don't should on your friends. Yeah, because shoulding is what we do to ourselves. I should do this. When you're saying you should do it, you're not saying God's asked me to do it. You're not saying I want to do this with Father. What you're saying is I've got a rule I'm following, and if I don't follow it, I'm going to feel bad, and I'd rather do it than feel bad, so I do it. And I stay captive to guilt. The only way to free, get free from guilt is to keep walking in what God asks you to do and nothing more and let the guilt die. The good news is it will die. The bad news is it seems to take an awful long time for some of us. Oh, man. But when it dies. Man, I even hear the word should anymore, and I just kind of quiver. I hear people talking. I, was, oh, boy. Not living. I used to live there all the time. That was my life. I woke up with such an agenda of all I needed to do for God on this day and all God needed to do for me to get me through all the things I needed to do for Him. And every day of my life I lived exhausted, and frustrated. At the end of every day, God never came through for my agenda like I thought He should. Oh, He did a few little nice things now and then, but on God's best day with me, we broke even. I never ended the day overwhelmed with joy. I can tell you there's been one day in the last 10 years, one day, when I haven't put my head on a pillow at night when I was just outrageously grateful for what God had done in my life that day. And that was the day I dropped my computer at LAX and broke it on going through security. I was laying in bed that night and saying, God, I'm really not grateful today. I'm just not. This day really sucked, man. I lost my computer. Now, I've had worse things happen. I'm not saying my days are lovely, everything's there. But you know what? Even the most brutal things that Sarah and I go through and people we're going through very difficult things with, when God is in the midst of it, it's okay. And if God had been the one who dropped my computer at LAX, I probably would have been okay with it. But I had dropped it. What a fool I was. And that was my issue. It's a great way to live. To live out of this growing relationship. And I had a woman tell me a couple years ago, the best thing you said to me, Wayne, is if I didn't do anything for a year, God was okay with that. Because my whole life was driven to do stuff. And, you know, and we're busy doing stuff. See, I think the whole parable, the Good Samaritan, I think why the Levite and the priest and all that passed. We always talk about the hypocrisy of ministry, and they really didn't care about people. I really just think they were too busy to stop because I know what that looks like. I'd see people in need pass my way, and I'm late to a discipleship meeting or a board meeting or something I had to get to. And it's not that you didn't want to stop. It's that you couldn't stop. When you live without all that stuff, you've got time to stop. You've got time to acknowledge the moment. You've got time to live in it with people. Learning to live free. And I think that's what Jesus, this is John 15 language. If you want to go back to the sermon on the, uh, excuse me, the upper room discourse that we talked about yesterday. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. Remain in me. Let my words be in you. Jesus saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. And John 15 starts out pretty aggressive, doesn't it? Bear fruit or burn is the first few verses, right? (laughs) And, And you would think the uptake is, I better bear some fruit. But the uptake is not go bear fruit. It's you can't bear fruit if you don't abide. If you abide, you can't not bear fruit. Mm-hmm. So the, the uptake wasn't go bear fruit because how many apple trees you see out there just really, I'm going to bear some fruit. <laughs> if an apple tree is happy, it'll bear fruit. If it's not happy, and I don't mean happy in, I don't mean that God wants to make you happy every day in the temporal terms we measure it, but the fullness of His joy, when we live in the fullness of who He is in a growing way day by day, your life will take on whatever fruitfulness God wants it to take. And uh, so learning to live by principle, 
rather than living or learning to live in love rather than by principle, learning to live in the freedom of who God's made us to be. Let me just read you a little bit. We've, we've already picked on Galatians 2. Let me read you Romans 8. And I'll show you what else this means because it's not just not living by principle. It's not also not living by flesh avoidance. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. This is this line that Romans is talking about. Religion exists here. Religion is still us performing for God. It doesn't free us from the law of sin and death. It still results in death. And yes, I know I spelled religion wrong and it's bugging me and I'll go back and spell it right someday. So there you go. Um, those of you that didn't know, to live here, this is the law of the spirit of life, which is even kind of funny to call it a law because it's life. Now, here's where I think principles are valuable. When I read through scripture and I see the way God thinks and the way God wants me to live and you know, looking to be in conversations where I give grace to the hearer rather than in conversations to get out what Wayne needs to say. This, real wake-up call for me with this. When I was moving from being a, a localized teacher of Scripture with a group of people on Sunday morning, which I loved. I loved teaching people, taking people through things in God's life and working them through over time. I really enjoyed that. And I, when we had multiple services, I really hated having to teach the same thing two or three times on the same day. Yeah. Oh, man, i got to do that again. I'm already done with that. I'm on to something else. And... Uh, when I knew I'd be traveling around more and talking about similar things with different groups of people rather than different things with a similar group of people, I was meeting with my friend. I said, you know what? I said, I don't know how you do it. He does this. And if you've never heard Gail Irwin talk about the nature of Jesus, go hear Gail Irwin talk about the nature of Jesus. Servantquarters.org. Uh, we'll give you his schedule. If he's anywhere near you, go. Let some other group pay for him to be there and just go enjoy it. He he has the nature of Jesus down like no one I know. It is hilarious. You will hurt when you leave because you will have laughed so hard. He's a comedian, does this great stuff on But he does the same thing every Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning of his life. He does exactly the same thing. And I was asking him, what does it? I don't know how you do it. He says, what do you mean? I said, you know what? Even when I teach the same thing three times on a Sunday morning, I'm going to switch up the... I'll, I'll get to the same point, but I'll use three different texts and three different illustrations just so I won't get bored. And he just looked at me with a little twinkle in his eye and he said, oh, so ministry's still about you. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, talk about feeling naked. I felt naked. I, he said, so really, it's, he said, listen, Wayne, when God gives you something to say and you see what God gives you to do, frees people to live in his life. You won't care if you say the same bee, 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 every day of your life if people are getting free. Because it's not about you being amused. Wow. That says a whole lot about what I thought of ministry. And now when you're in conversations with people, not for what you need to say. or what you need, But see, you could read you know, the Ephesians 5 passage about make sure that in conversation you're giving grace to the hearer. You could read that as a rule and go try to implement it and you would fail. But what you can do is look at that passage and say, oh, God, this is somehow you want me to live. Well, you've got to change some things in me so that I live this way. So I think the power of living out all the things in the New Testament, putting on the old man and putting on the new, that's what we do in relationship. That's not the invitation to performance. Stop doing these things and start doing these things. This is what's saying, this is the old man. This is the old Wayne. He's got agenda. He needs to look good in front of people. He's got to, he's got to, he's got to. When you see that, that's the old you. And who's going to deal with the old me? Am I going to deal with the old me? No, that's why Jesus came around here on this side of my mess. And I can say, God, I just, you know, most conversations I'm in, I'm, I'm always focused on me and what I want to say and what I want to get done. God say, yeah, I noticed that. Can you change me? Ah, yeah, I can change you. Now, he doesn't always change that. He changes something you think is totally unrelated to that. And then you notice in the next time you're in a conversation, suddenly you're actually really listening to the person you're talking to. You're going, wow, this is unique. I've never listened to before. I've, I, and then you're, you're talking to them and saying nothing more than is going to be helpful in the moment and letting them take it on. Conversations I have about who God is with the world are all controlled by the person I'm talking to. I'm not going one bit further than they want to go because I think it's really important for me not to have an agenda with them. But Jesus set me free of my agenda in so many other ways that I only see it now happening in relationships with the world. <laughs> That's crazy. 
And the best stuff in our life, isn't it the stuff that we're unaware that we're doing? If we're doing it intentionally, I think this is the freedom. So he says, now we're going to live the law of the spirit of life. Uh, Set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and so condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. However, you are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God lives in you. Notice what he's talking about. The mindset on the flesh. Now, in the old way of looking at this, the mindset on the flesh is the mindset on indulging the flesh, right? We can read that and say, oh, the mindset on the sinful nature. That's a person who's meditating on sinful things, doing sinful things. It, that's the mindset on the flesh. What we don't also acknowledge is the mindset on the flesh is also the mind that wakes up trying to avoid the flesh. If you're living your life to abstain from the flesh rather than to indulge the flesh, you're still living with a mindset on the flesh. Mm-hmm. Haven't you noticed that? The things you promised God you would never do again, then you do them. And then you blame yourself because you're a lousy person, you're not committed enough, and you don't work hard enough. And, uh, but this was never meant to work. The old nature cannot please God. You cannot live by the abstention of flesh. If you live to abstain from the flesh, that's the same as living to please the flesh. It's still living in the land of sin and death. When I live relationally, I'm not, I, don't have, I don't wake up in the morning, okay, now I'm not going to do this today. I'm going to be this guy. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get impatient. The more I focus on it, the more I'm going to do it. Absolutely. But the more I get in touch with who God is, the more He transforms me. And I'm in a situation thinking about what is God doing here? I'm not even thinking about my flesh. Not only do I not indulge it, I also am not abstaining it, and I'm finding freedom to be who God wants me to be. It's, it's, I, I used this word yesterday. We didn't parse it out very much, but I, I talked about sin being displaced. And I think that's where the healing of the cross is with sin. Because what God wants to do is displace sin in us by... Let's give an example. If, if it were dark outside, if this were nighttime, and we turned off all the lights in this room, and I said to you, let's all work together and drive out the darkness. Could we do it? We, we couldn't do it, could we? we? We couldn't put it in a little box and take it outside. We, we couldn't drive it out. There's nothing we... Our best effort cannot move darkness. It's, why? Because darkness isn't something. Darkness is the absence of something. You turn on a light and darkness is displaced. Does it go anywhere? Does the darkness run outside and under a tree or go in the kitchen and get behind the refrigerator? No, it doesn't go anywhere because it's nothing. I think sin is a nothing. I think sin is the darkness of our hearts that results from us not knowing we're loved by Father. And I think that we see in Adam and Eve, at the very beginning of it, here's the temptation. Did God say you would surely die if you eat from that tree? Yep, that's what God said to Eve. And the snake says, yeah, you won't surely die. God just knows that the day you'll eat it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. What is the enemy saying about God? God can't be trusted. He's holding out on you. Something really wonderful here. And God, you're not really going to die. God's a liar. So there's the first lie. But the second thing he says is true. Your eyes will be open to no good and evil. That was true. But the truth in the presence of a lie is a lie nonetheless. Because what it does is it drove a wedge between Adam and Eve and the God who made them. Now, if Eve totally trusted the God who went to the cross for us, and the enemy comes and says, God's holding out on you, what's the temptation? Is there any temptation? You come to me and say, Wayne, I got a call last night from one of your best friends. They said Sarah is taking all your money, putting it in a bank account, and she's leaving you. You better get home, take care of business. Are you going to cause me one moment of apprehension or anxiety? You're not, because you don't know Sarah. You don't. Yeah. I heard all 
It's a mixture. Always is a mixture. It only takes a little cyanide to ruin the Kool-Aid, though, doesn't it? And the most deceptive lies are those that travel in larger bits of truth. But if you were to, add, if you were to say to me, Sarah's running out on you. See, I've lived with this woman for 31 years. Sarah's had better days, better times to leave me than she does now. Our relationship is as rich and as vibrant and as full as it, I can't imagine it being any better than it is. I absolutely treasure every moment I have with her. She does me. When I came to Pennsylvania uh, last year, uh, no, it was, before, it was a different trip before that. Uh, we had a number of real estate deals in process and things had to close on a certain date. Sarah decided we were moving last summer and this was Sarah's decision, not mine, but I, I, I said, I'm in, well, I'll go with you. Uh, but she wanted to switch homes. I want to do it in the fall. She wanted to do it in the summer because she's a counselor at a school. She's off in the summer. She's got all summer to do her little nesting thing. So I said, you know what? If we're moving over the summer, my schedule's already set. I've got a, this week right here, I can be home to help move you. And I really can't move some of these other things. So these real estate deals had to close by a certain day so we could move by a certain day. Ten days I'm going to be gone. I signed over to Sarah complete power of attorney for my signature because I didn't know what she would have to sign on my behalf to get those things to close. And so I'm signing this thing there, and I look at her and saying, hey, this is your chance, babe. If you want to take it all, this is the time to take it. You've got everything I own is now yours. And she said, yep, yeah, I just might do that. And we had a great laugh over it. Did I once think twice about what Sarah was doing at home? I did not. Now, that's one over 31 years of a relationship wasn't true when we got married. We thought it was. All that giddy love of marriage. Oh, yeah, we love each other completely. You don't even know who they are yet. You have no idea. 31 years of knowing Sarah, loving her. If Eve would have totally known who this God was for her, and the enemy says, God's holding out on you, how does she respond? I think she responds something like this. I think she'd go, Fuck. let me get this straight. The God who made us, who put us in this garden, who said everything is here for our enjoyment except this. This God is going to lie about this tree. For, yeah. No wonder you snakes aren't supposed to talk. Go away. And there's no temptation. Trust actually, I think sin is, and I think this is what Romans is saying, when it says whatever is not of faith is sin. What it's saying is all sin results from mistrust or distrust, or unbelief. Does that make sense? Try, uh, sin is, and I think you put every sin listed in Scripture in this definition, sin is grabbing for myself that which God has not given. Grabbing for myself that which God has not given. Anything you're doing that can be classed as sin is something God hasn't given you, but you're going to take it anyway. Sometimes how we treat people, sometimes how we indulge our flesh. It's just taking for ourselves that which God has not given. And I, I think it's an incredible thing that how sin gets displaced in us is not somehow I'm going to get strong enough to resist this sin and resist that appetite and whatever. But as my trust in God grows, my sin gets displaced. If I trust God about my provision, I'm not having to be greedy and take advantage of people around my life. If I trust God for my joy in life, then I'm trying to not make, I'm not manipulating Sarah to be my joy in this life. When I trust God to handle the details of my future, I'm not in the anxiety of what my future doesn't look like. Do you understand? Trust displaces sin. So, and, and here's where trust is. Have you ever had anybody say to you at your worst moment, going through a very difficult time, well, Wayne, you just need to trust God more. Have you ever had that said to you? Okay, we have. Has it ever been helpful? <laughs> See, isn't that weird? That's the best advice people have to give. You just need to trust God more. And it's the worst advice you can get when you're hurting. Why is that? A couple of reasons. Number one, I think it's because they're right. If we did trust God more, we wouldn't be in this pit. So it's on the surface of it, they're right. Second thing is, anybody that talks about trust that way doesn't know what trust is for reasons I'll tell you in a moment. So when the person, when I'm hurting and somebody's telling me to trust God more, that person, usually the one that couldn't trust their way out of a wet paper bag. And if they were in my situation, they'd be doing a lot worse than I am. That's the other thing we know. But the final thing we know is this, against all we've been told in religion, religion makes faith another act, a religious act. 
You can choose to trust God more. Tonight, we're going to surrender all to Jesus, and we're going to choose to trust Him more than anything else. And we go through all those things, and we actually walk out of the room feeling good until we wake up the next morning and all the anxiety's back and all that. And then, again, we blame you because you took it back from the altar and all that stuff. See, here's what we intuitively know. Trust is not a choice. Trust is a reality. The reason when someone says to you, you need to trust God more, is because what you know is trust is a re- I cannot choose to trust God more than I trust Him today. Ultimately, trust is the fruit of a growing love relationship. You trust somebody to the degree that you know they love you, and you shouldn't trust anybody one bit more than that. See? The betrayal of you know kids that expect their parents to be trustworthy and love them. And when a parent is abusive, when a parent exploits a child in, in ways that that happens, the reason that is so devastating to a person is because the one person in the world you should be able to trust is your parent. But in our broken world, that isn't always true, and that gets broken. And then we've taught in the church. We taught people. We used to teach people to trust each other. Here's these home groups. These are other brothers and sisters. Get in there and trust them. And then when brothers and sisters do stupid things that hurt, and we've taught people to trust that, we've done them a grave disservice. You shouldn't trust me one inch beyond your conviction that I love you and care about you and would put you above me. And that's the same goes for God. You're not going to trust God one bit beyond your growing relationship of love in Him allows you to do it. So when you're in the middle of a situation that's bringing anxiety to your heart, see, we don't need this false guilt of, see, you should grow more and you would be trusting God through this, you pathetic little Christian. When I get in a situation now that creates anxiety in my heart, here's what I know. There's something about Father I don't know. But if I knew it, I wouldn't be anxious here. That takes me right to my prayer life. Father, what is it about you? I don't know. That if I knew it, I wouldn't be anxious here. I am anxious here, so I don't know it. That's why when somebody says, trust God more, we react inside because it's a reaction. You can't trust God today more than your relationship allows you to. So someone telling you to do it is not helpful. It's like little Billy. Little Billy's in the sixth grade. Little Billy decides he's going to go out for track. Never been out for track before. He's going to go out for track. He goes and signs up for a track meet, gets in his first race. It's a 440-yard run. He comes around the far turn to the finish line. He is 25 yards behind every other kid in the race. He is going to finish last by a mile. And his dad is in the stand screaming, Run faster, Billy! Run faster, Billy! And Billy's thinking, Oh, now, see, I never thought of that. I should try and run faster. (laughs) That's why that whole trust thing is such a problem for us. Jesus is not in the stands yelling at you, trust more, Wayne, trust more, Wayne. What Jesus is, Jesus would watch you run a race like that. Here's what Jesus would do to little Billy, I think. Jesus goes down to the track after the race and finds little Billy. He says, hey, Billy, saw you running out there. Billy's just, oh, he's embarrassed out of his mind. Oh, I'm, I was horrible. I, I shouldn't have done it. Said, what do you mean you shouldn't have done it? Oh, I was horrible. See, I finished last. I was last by a mile. And Jesus would say, well, Billy, it looked to me like that was the first race you'd ever run. He said, well, you know, it really was. He said, you know, for your first race, I think you did fine. Those kids have been running for a long time. You want to learn to run, Billy. I know something about running. Okay, what I'll do, I'll meet you every day after school. If you want to, I'll meet you at the park. And I, I know some things about technique that's going to help you run faster. And we can do some strength conditioning that's going to help you run faster. And we can do some stamina things that's going to help you hold that pace through the course. Billy, I can help you run like those kids run. And if Billy wants to run, Billy says, I'm in. You see, running is a reality. Trust is a reality. Faith is not another religious act that we're supposed to give to God. Faith, trust is what God produces in us out of this love relationship. The more you know that God's got your back, the less you watch your back. Does that make sense? It's a fabulous thing. And when I'm in a situation where I'm not trusting, I'm just going... God, what do I not know about you? What, what is it that now you want to show me? Because I know you don't want me to be anxious here. I know that. That's just clear. But I am anxious here. So what is it about you I don't know? That when I know it, I can walk through this situation and not have anxiety or anger or depression or indulgence or whatever. When I fall to sin, I'm like, God, there's something about you I don't I'm grabbing for myself here because I don't know who you are. So every point of sin... 
really becomes a point to get your focus back on the spirit because the mindset on the flesh is death, even the mind abstaining from it, and certainly the mind wallowing in guilt about it. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, that which turns back to God and says, okay, man, I need some changing here. And God, he's got this big mess in front. He knows what you, he's not surprised. Oh, you're not trusting me there, Wayne? Oh, God, you'd think by now you could. God's into reality. He's not into what he hoped would be true. He knows everything about me. He knows what my depth of love with him right now sustains, and he knows what it doesn't. So he knows when I just trip up and fall, and I'm all kind of broken. And he says, yes, he didn't Jesus know that when he said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight? I think this is the best, one of the best stories in the whole book. Because here's Peter going, you know, Jesus says, you know, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. <laughs> you would think Peter would have said, hey, cool. You told him no, right? <laughs> you told him no, right? You know, Jesus, Jesus, Satan asked permission to do that, and evidently Jesus said, yeah, okay. He said, you're going to deny me three. He said, I will not. I love you. Now, see... The Jesus I grew up with in Sunday school doesn't let this story unfold. This is not like the Jesus I grew up with in Sunday school. The Jesus I grew up with in Sunday school would turn to Peter and say, Hey, listen, if you follow me tonight to Caiaphas' house, you're going to deny me three times. If you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my Father who's in heaven. So here's what you better do, buddy. You better go home, lock the door, crawl under the bed. I'll see you Sunday. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, You know what, Peter? Big, big screw-up tonight. <laughs> and Peter's like, I, like no, I, I'll die for you. And I think Jesus knows that's what's in his heart. But his love relationship with Jesus isn't big enough to get him there tonight. It will 40 years later. That relationship will grow to a point where Peter's given the choice to deny or die, and he dies. But not now, not tonight. The relationship doesn't go that deep. But you know what? I think Jesus wanted Peter to know it didn't go that deep. So you know what? Let's go. Here's what Jesus says to Peter. Not only Satan asked permission, and by inference, he said, okay. But now he said to Peter, I've already prayed for you that your faith fail not and that you return and strengthen your brothers. Is this the Jesus you grew up with in Sunday school? that already was praying for Peter past the failure he hadn't even committed yet and could have been avoided if he'd just gone home instead of gone to Caiaphas' house. This is, I'll tell you, this is the Jesus of the Bible. Come on. I've already prayed for you. One, that your faith is not going to fail and that you come back and strengthen your brothers. So you don't even come back as damaged goods. Oh, I'm the denier. I'm the real ugly denier guy. I pray that your trust in me doesn't fail, and then you come back. And I think that's what part of that Peter, do you love me thing is going on after the resurrection. Because I think Peter's saying, gosh, I thought I did, but I can't say I do now. Because if, if I loved you, how could I have done that? It, that's the false interpretation of, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because the religious way of interpreting is, see, your failure to keep them proves you don't. And you prove your loving in the keeping. But that's not what Jesus is saying. The context is this. Stop worrying about keeping. Get the loving right. The keeping takes care of itself. The keeping doesn't prove the loving. The loving guarantees the keeping. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. So this journey, when Jesus says, or what John says at the end of his, uh, end of his uh, gospel, the reason I've written these things to you is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing have life in His name. And now we've, we've interpreted that as a salvation passage. Believing means you confess that He's the Christ. And then because you've confessed that, you get life in His name. Believing in the New Testament sense is not the wimpy, weak, believing word we have in English. Believing is the, is the noun form of faith. We don't have it. We talk about, or the verb form of faith. We don't talk about faithing something. We don't use that in English. We use the word belief. But our language for belief is pretty weak, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, I believe it's going to rain today. I believe those Steelers might win the Super Bowl again. No, they do or not. I mean, belief is just nothing to us. We just use belief about everything. What he said, what if we put the word trust there? Listen to what he's saying. I have written these things to you so that you would trust that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that different than just believing? 
Believing is assent to theology. Assent to theology isn't enough. Assent to good theology is a good thing. But even the devils believe that he's the Son of God. That's what James says. They know that's who he is. Believing the fact isn't the issue. It's trusting in him as the Messiah. By believing, the more I trust him in my life, the more of his life I live in. Now, that's trust is not a work. Trust is the fruit of the relationship. So I'm back to abiding again. I abide in him. I'm growing in this love. I watch God save my bacon time and time again. I watch God pull me up by my bootstraps when I've been the biggest idiot on the planet. And that just wins me more to his trust. I think God wins us to trust. And I'll tell you how he did it with me financially. I travel all over the world. People ask me what it costs to have me come. My answer is, I'll just come. We'll trust God to take care of things. If God puts it on your heart to take care of it, great. If God doesn't, he'll put it on someone else's heart. God has taken care of me for 12 years. I do not spend one moment of my life thinking about how I pay for anything. Now, oh, that's a lot of faith. No, it's not. The first time this happened for me, six months out of losing my job and not knowing how God's taking care of us, invited to go teach at a seminary in Singapore. This is right ahead of that Australia trip I told you about yesterday. Same trip. Going to Singapore to teach two and a half weeks. Going to get from them $3,200 to uh, pay my airfare and $1,000 a week for teaching, for, or $1,000, excuse me, $2,000 for the two and a half weeks I'm there. That was going to help us pay to get to Australia. We had it all worked out. Sarah was joining me for the Australia part. Our whole tickets for that airfare deal was $3,200. That's what the seminary promised me. So we only had to worry about how does God pay for the rest of our living during that time. Didn't seem as big. Until the day I was ready to order tickets, I got a fax from the seminary in, in uh, Singapore. Sorry, we've had some amazing financial difficulties here. We cannot afford to bring you here. We can't pay for your ticket. We can't pay for the stipend that we said. If you still want to come as a missionary outreach, you're welcome to come but we really need to be released from our financial agreement. And uh, so I just happened that day to be meeting with some brothers. And I read them the facts. And I said, I just, I was having lunch with them. And I just said, I'm really depressed. They said, why? Well, I was so looking forward to this. And they said, what? We're not going because of the money? <laughs> yeah, we're not going because of the money. What are you talking about? I don't have $3,200. <laughs> he said, well, it seems to me if God's put it on your heart, then God's got a way to take care of it. And I'm quite easy for you to say, you have a real job with a paycheck every two weeks. I don't. He goes, I don't know, Wayne. Seems to me. And uh, <laughs> so I went home, and Sarah and I talked about it, and I said, you know what? I really felt like that I was supposed to go on this. I really felt like God had asked me to go. I was excited. I had the teaching stuff kind of all lined out. I was excited about going. And I, I said, Sarah, why don't, we just, why don't we just go? We'll still go to Australia. And, you know, if we hadn't made this decision... Certainly what God did in our hearts in Australia could have been done in other ways, but this was all part of not missing. Felt like Sarah, we talked about maybe you shouldn't go to Australia. Will he save that much money from that? And then it was, you know what? We felt like we needed to be there together. I'm so glad we were because what happened in our hearts and there needed to happen together. So I, here's what Sarah and I decided. Let's just go. We'll put it on our credit card. If God pays for it, great. If not, we'll pay it off over the next few years. I'll get a real job. We'll stop playing these God games. That's pretty much how we did it. Now, does that sound like a lot of faith to you? That's not a lot of faith. I was ready for the consequences. If I've got $3,200 in debt, because I don't have anything on my credit cards, so that'll be the first thing on them. And you know what? I'll, it'll take me a while, but we'll get them paid off. But let's just do it. And I get to Singapore, and the provost picks me up. And, and Oh, and three days before I leave, my son has an appendicitis attack. It ruptures. They do surgery. We don't have medical insurance either. So now I'm going, oh, God, this is just great. Now I'm going to be in Singapore with a kid just getting out of the hospital, and he'll be in therapy for years because Dad wasn't there. I'm, just, I'm going on this trip just depressed out of my mind. I get there. The provost of the center picks me up. We're driving down to the school, and he says, why are you here? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we told you we couldn't pay your expenses. We can't pay you to be here. Why are you here? Because you invited me. He said, we invited 12 of you Americans to come over here, and you're the only one who came. Now, I'm not feeling like, oh, gosh, I've got the, I've got the power. I was sitting there going, I'm the idiot. <laughs> they have all heard from God but me. I alone am the moron here at the seminary. And he said, we're very grateful you're here. You know, he said, we, we've scheduled some speaking for you in the evenings. Maybe we'll pick up some honorary. Maybe that'll be helpful. And I said, yeah, no problem. I said, 
And here, I'm saying this on the outside. We said we'd trust God, didn't we? We just pray. You're totally released. And I'm, I'm saying it like I really believe it. Inside, I'm going, I'll be paying off this trip for the rest of my life. No faith in the way that we measure faith. I guess just the willingness to say, God, let's see if you are who you say you are. First week in the seminary, I do speaking. I'm getting $40, $50 for a speaking thing. And even it's, it's, it's not going to be helping for anything. And the last week, I'm, I've been there a week and a half teaching. I've spoken at a few house groups and a few institutional kinds of gatherings. And, you know, I'm getting a little bit, but it's not, it's not a lot. And I'm, I'm having a hard time sleeping at night, to be honest. I'm like, God, how am I going to pay for this? Poor Sarah's at home, and now I'm here, and this isn't happening. And the last week I was there, five days of teaching, Monday through Friday, I come out of the class on Monday, and the receptionist says, Wayne, i got some envelopes here for you. What? Over and got Wayne on them. And I said, people drop these off. I've spoken at places. I haven't said one thing about money to anybody because I am, I'm that obstinate little child that's saying to God, if you want me to live this way, you're going to have to do it without my help. I mean, I was, it wasn't great faith or holiness. It was just, I'm not going to help you ruin my life. You're going to ruin it on your own. And, um, but they were envelopes and little notes from people just said, you know, I heard you speak the other night and I woke up this morning, God, I just put on my heart to give you this. And it'd be $40, $50 in there. All week long, every time I walked by the receptionist desk, she said, well, I got an envelope for you. I'm like, what? And she's got another envelope. And I'm taking this money up there. It's $40, $50, $60. And I'm, going, I'm just throwing them in my suitcase. at Singapore dollars. I'm, I don't know what to do with this. This is not going to work. By Friday, there's a man waiting for me. I finished class at noon Friday. Man's waiting out front for me, a man that I had talked to after one of the things that we had done, and he said, he's a businessman. He said, can I take you to lunch? You got anything for lunch today? I said, what are you planning? He said, can I take you to lunch? I said, absolutely. So we went to lunch. At the end of lunch, he says, I hope this is not embarrassing to you, but he said, God asked me to give you $400. So he shoved $400 across the table, Singapore. And I went, wow, thank you. That's amazing. And uh, he said, I hope you can use it. And I said, no doubt I can use it. Uh, I went back to my hotel room after lunch. Got all these envelopes, got all the cash out, counted it, put it in order. I had no idea how much it was, U.S. Took it down to the street to change it to U.S. before I left the country. It's $3,200 and change. I walked back into the seminary. I'm going, I almost am mad at God for doing this. You know, on the one hand, I'm grateful to have the bill paid. On the other hand, I don't want to live like this because I haven't slept at night. It's been horribly terrorizing. And I walked back in a little bit miffed, and as I walked by the reception, she said, Wayne? I said, don't tell me I have another envelope. Because I was really frustrated. She said, no, the provost wants to see you. I said, okay. So I walk in and sit down in the provost's office. He said, Wayne, kids have loved you. Great teaching. Wonderful time. We talked about stuff that I wouldn't talk about today, but that's beside the point. Um, and he said, you know what? We're grateful you came. We really can't pay you what you're worth to have been here for us, he said, but we did get some money today. And... We can give you, see, I'm embarrassed to do this because I know he's going to pay for your plane ticket, but he took out five $100 U.S. bills and he laid them out on the desk and said, we want to give you this. And I reached in my pocket and I took out 32 $100 bills and I put them on a deal and I said, I'll raise you 3200 He says, what's that? I said, I have everything you promised me. How'd you get that? I said, people have been bringing money by all week long in little bits of money. It's added up to 30, it's exactly what you promised me. God's provided his eyes were this big. He goes, that's incredible. I said, isn't it? He said, well, add this to it, man. You have $3,700. I said, you know what? Your staff's not paid. I've got what you promised. You keep it. He said, no, no, there's a miracle gone here. We're going to be part of it. You keep it. So we, we spent about five minutes <laughs> making our theological arguments about who should get the $500. I finally gave up and took it. I left there with $3,700. Not from a wonderfully obedient, submitted, trusting son, but from an obstinate, arrogant, God, I defy you to do this kind of thing. When I say God wins us to trust, I mean it. Every place I trust God in my life right now has been won through things like that. I just simply did what God put on my heart to do, willing to accept the consequences if it wasn't him, and then watched him do. I now have not lost a night of sleep to anything I do. I've lived for 12 years this way now. I've always still going, you're done providing for me. People ask what I do for a living, and I don't know how to tell you what. Yes, the book sales bring in some money. They do. Not enough to live on. I speak, and sometimes that does it. I do bridge builder and consulting. When I do that, it pays pretty well. 
And so I was with a group of people not long ago. They couldn't even collect enough money to pay for my gas to drive there. And I, because gas is pretty expensive these days, and it was a bit of a drive. But see, when I was leaving, I, a check came in the mail for $500 from somebody I'd never heard from and just said, I think you need some help this week. How do they know that? I don't know how they know that other than the God guy doing the God guy thing. And I got in the car, and I, I, say, I remember saying in the car to God, I just said, I'm not getting any money this weekend, am I? <laughs> it was just like, a, and I didn't. And God paid for the trip before I left. Now, sometimes I've come back without money from groups of folks. I don't count it. I don't worry about what's happening. If it's on your heart to help me be here, help. If it's not on your heart, don't do it because you feel guilty, or you should, or because the speaker's here. Because God doesn't need that from you, and I don't need that from you. I really don't. I've been on trips, come back with nothing, and the next day a $1,000 check arrives in my mailbox from somebody. Woke up this morning. God said you'd need this. <laughs> it's, I'm done. I'm done worrying about it. I'm just done asking the questions. I'm done struggling. God has taken care. Now, God's won me to trust. I don't feel like, well, I'm really God's man of faith and power about money. I don't feel like that. I just feel like when, when we get to heaven and stand around at the end of this whole thing, Carmen, we're not going to stand there and say, we were good, wouldn't we? We really got that. We got free of religion, and we were living in the reality of this and that. Man, we were really good. See, I don't think conversations are like that in heaven at all. I think Scott and I are going to find each other in heaven, and we're going to look at each other and say, didn't he save our butt over and over again? From all the stupid places we wandered into. Yes! That's the joy of it. No, you're not bright enough. No, we're not going to get it. No, we're not. But if you can simply trust, this is what Paul wrote to the Galatians. If you'll simply believe what you hear, that's how he started. He didn't teach him how to read the Bible and get all the principles and live by this and that. He just said, now, when I was among you, what? Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. You simply believed what you heard. Faith with hearing. You, God put something on your heart. Now, how does God put stuff on your heart? Okay? He didn't speak to me in words that I hear. and didn't scrawl things. God just puts those little convictions in your head that kind of sound like you, except they're not you. And I know they're not me when I'm arguing with them. See, when I'm in the shower going, this is the stupidest thing you've ever thought of, Wayne, I'm going, okay. See, this is probably not my thought. I don't argue with my thoughts. I like my thoughts. Every one of my thoughts are great thoughts. It's God's thoughts that drive me nuts. You want me to do what? Now, see, when I'm doing that now, then, okay, this might be you, mightn't it? Now, here's where I am with that. I think God speaks to most... I don't know how God speaks to you. I, if, if He's like me and my kids, He may speak to all of us very differently. So I can just say, for me and for a lot of folks I've talked to, I think what best expresses it is, is a growing conviction over time. Someone's on my heart. You know what? Two days later, they're still on my heart. I'm going to give them a phone call. You know? I feel like God wants me to do it. It seems stupid. I don't have the money for it. Three days later, it's still there. It's growing, if anything. This is growing conviction. So have I been wrong doing that sometimes? Yes. Be wrong. God doesn't care if you're wrong once in a while. God doesn't care if you miss it. How are you going to learn to live this life? See, what I thought I had to do as a pastor was I made a lot of mistakes learning how to follow God. So my job is to save everybody else from saving, making those mistakes. But what I actually do is keep them from learning how to listen. You think you've heard God? Share it with some other brother. You'd be an idiot not to share what you think God's saying with, to you to some other brothers and sisters just to get their input. You'd be an idiot not to. But if you want to be an idiot, God loves idiots too. So okay, it's okay. Go do it on your own and just see how it starts. And that's fine. I've shared stuff with brothers that all affirmed it was right and in the end it wasn't. So sharing it with all your brothers isn't proof of anything either. Right? We're muddling along in this. God wants to make himself known as a person in your life. He's a presence. And this presence in person gives you thoughts and insight about things and, and, and peace about things. And the biggest thing he does it isn't even words that he leads you with. The biggest thing is I become so wrapped up in this love thing. I'm loved by a father. And as I'm loved by a father, then I find myself responding in love to people without a clear word from God as to what to do. Well, what does love lead you to do? Um, and that's good enough. I mean, yes, what would be better, do you think, if we're in a room like this and God says, okay, um, Carl needs $200. And now God could just say to, to Marty, Marty, I want you to give Carl $200. And you could, as an act of obedience, say, you know what, God's put it on my heart, here it is, and go on. But what if instead, 
God gave me such a love for Carl that in our conversation I found out, gosh, there's a need here, and I, I just want to give him 200 bucks because I love and care about him. And, and so I just I give him 200 bucks and say, hey, I hope this is going to be a blessing to you. It's kind of maybe just what you're talking about. And he's going to say, oh, man, don't. I didn't mean to complain if you're going to try and give me money. I'm saying, no, that's no, not about that. Then what would be better for you? Would you rather get love from somebody? Okay, God told me to do this. <laughs> or somebody just loves you enough to say, oh, man, you touched me. I want to help you. And would you rather have? See, I think a lot of what, as we grow in this love, I'm hearing less instructions from God to do things as it's just the naturalness of what love leads me to do with people I'm near. And it's just so freeing to live in this great dance of affection. And you can't do it till you know your love. Yeah. We get caught up in this love relationship. And we're just doing what God puts on our heart. And yeah, and, and the more you read the scriptures, you're going to find your life becoming more in line with the things that are in here. But not because you've read the things that are in here and try to make them happen, but because making, God's making you a bit like him in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's just the most freeing thing in the world. And so to live by what you hear, to know him as he is, and, ah, and let him win you to trust. By believing where I trust God to take care of me, that's where I live in his life. Where I'm grabbing for myself that which God has not given, that's where I'm not living in his life. And that's what John 20 is talking about. And where I'm not living in his life, I get to go back here. God, what am I missing? Would you show me? And he's just so good to show you. And he's got your whole life to sort those things out. We, we think that God needs to do it right now. And one of the things I, when I love, what, even though it says, you know, by, by trust uh, we have life in his name or by believing I have life in his name. And then Hebrews 12 says, question came up yesterday about discipline. Here's what, here's what Hebrews 12 says before it starts the discipline argument. Jesus, who is the what and what of our faith? It's the author and the finisher of our faith. So this is even a work he does. So this is not, you know what, I'm going to get my faith all finished up here. No, it's not your job, it's his job. He's going to author it in you. He's gonna, and that training is not you've done bad whack. The training is what I went through at Singapore. I'm going to teach you to trust. And that is oftentimes, yes, extremely, but God loves those he disciplines. My dad, farming in the vineyard and raising up, when you're disciplining a vine, you're not beating on it for being bad. You're just putting it up on the wire so it'll bear fruit. And yes, the vine can, don't do it. I want to just sprawl everywhere and you're whacking on me. And, and God just says, you know, I want you to be fruitful. I, I, because I wrote that book on the vineyard a long time ago, I travel all over the world and everybody has a grapevine just will say to me, can you have a look at my grapevine? I'll say, why? It's been borne fruit in years. Really? You get no fruit? It's beautiful. It's big vine. No fruit. Okay, let me look at it. Give me the prudent shears. And I'll, and I'll, go, I'll go out there and look at this huge vine. It's got leaves everywhere. Nothing on it. And I'll say, I can't do this for you now because you can't prune it in the summer. You've got to prune it in the winter. But here's what I want you to do. And I'll get a marking pin or something. Cut this off, 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 this off. Leave this, 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 and this. Five new growth canes on this vine. There's like 300 on it. I'm gonna, you move it down to the five best ones. They're going, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not kidding. Will it kill it? Oh, no, you're killing it. You're killing it by leaving 300 on it. It will be pretty, but it will not bear fruit. So do you want appearance? Do you want to look good? You want to eat grapes? Your choice. And they, I, get the, I get the email from, I pruned that vine the other day. You better be right. Because <laughs> that thing looks pretty pathetic. And then eight months later, my gosh, we have so many grapes around here. We don't know what to do with them. God disciplines those he loves. Why? Because you want to be fruitful. Because God wants you to be. The life I'm describing to you, this is not what you want. Oh, God, please. See, religion grows up with a very miserly God. Beg it out of him if you can. Show him you're serious. Prove to him that you're worthy of this. God's got all these goodies, and he's holding them close to the vest. Help you out. I don't think so yet. 300 more prayers. Maybe I'll do it. Because God doesn't reward religion. He doesn't. But God wants this life for you infinitesimally more than you want it for yourself. If you don't know that yet, then there's something about the cross God gets to make real to you. God wants the Abba relationship more with you than you want it. He's extravagant about teaching us to live this way. We just need to take the freedom to stop living by principles, to stop living by our fears and anxieties, 
to stop living by our guilt and just say, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and say, God, what are you asking me to do? I am following.